There you go. All right. Welcome. Uh, If you're just joining us this morning or you missed last week, we, as you can see, we are looking at the topic or idea of wisdom, wisdom literature in the Bible. We're beginning to make our way through the book of Proverbs this morning. And so this morning, our scripture reading is going to be from Proverbs chapter three and chapter four, some selected readings there. And you can follow along as always on the screen or in the Bible that you brought with you to church today. Here we go. Proverbs chapter three, verse one. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Listen, my son, accept what I say. In the years of your life will be many. I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way, for they cannot rest until they do evil. They're robbed of sleep till they make someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of a righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter to the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. That's God's word this morning. You can all say amen to that. Yeah. This past summer, the news network CNN launched something called the Wisdom Project, which consists of a group of writers and thinkers from various walks of life taking a look at what they believe it means to live life. And uh, one of the first essays was by a guy named David G. Allen, who in his essay in the Wisdom Project compares your life in general to one thing in particular. He says life's like a surprise trip. And here's what his essay says. He starts off saying, I am taking you on a surprise trip and you need to pack for it right now. Hurry home, but before you run off, you'll need some answers, don't you? How long will we be gone? Are we leaving the country? How will we get there? Should you bring sunscreen or snowshoes? He goes on to say, if you set a goal and you just start climbing toward it, whether it's to get rich, become a college professor, or learn to speak Portuguese, you'll probably fail unless you have a realistic expectation of the path it takes. For the trail is strewn with discouraging roadblocks and fool's gold, and it's never in a straight line. Now, he goes on to unpack all the ways in which you can be let down in your life, uh, disappointed by your life, how things can go wrong in your life, and maybe, just maybe, how you can avoid all of those, what he calls, discouraging roadblocks. But above all else, because he says your life is like a journey, it's like a trip, and because there are those thousands of unexpected questions along the way, more than anything, he says, the truth is, quote, you really need a map. 
a map. And that map, he says, is wisdom. To help you along your journey and to navigate all the questions that'll come, you need wisdom. And he's right. And he's right. And essentially, though, he's just telling you what the book of Proverbs has been telling us for thousands of years, especially chapters 3 and 4, which is what we're looking at this morning. Now, if you were here last week, we basically defined this idea of wisdom like that, like you just heard, that wisdom's like a map. Wisdom is like a guide to skillfully handling all the complexities of life. And we said morality, morality is not the same thing as wisdom, but while morality is crucial and doing something wrong is never wise, true wisdom is more than morality itself. The rules and the commandments we said are crucial for keeping you out of the ditches in life. But the reality is that most of your life is spent where? On the road, right? Not in the ditches, on the road. So how are you, the question is, how are you going to handle the majority of your life that's spent on the road, or as Proverbs calls it, the path? The path. Well, that's what these two chapters are about. These two chapters are all about one of the biggest themes in the Bible, and especially in Proverbs. And what they have to say about that theme is simultaneously enlightening. It's a bit frightening, but in the end, it's totally freeing, as we'll see. So let's take a stab at understanding something the book of Proverbs says is crucial to making it in your life and living well. This morning, let's look at the path. The path. Number one, we're going to see why the path. Number two, where the path. And finally, who the path. So let's begin number one, why the path. And you can see in these two chapters as we were reading through the scriptures there that the words path or way or steps are used at least 10 times in one form or another in those verses to describe your life, your living right now. So what is this showing us? Why is the writer of Proverbs getting all up in our faces about the idea of the path. Well, the main reason that the writer of Proverbs 3 and 4 is sort of standing out in the middle of the intersection of the front of the book and waving the big, you know, sign that says path on it is to get you to believe what most of us and what most of Western culture doesn't want to believe, which is this, that the way to a great life is slow. The way to a great life is inconvenient, And the way to a great life requires the accumulation of wisdom, which itself is a slow and inconvenient process. I'll say it again. The way to a great life is slow. The way to a great life is inconvenient. And the way to a great life requires the accumulation of wisdom, which itself is a slow and inconvenient process. And of course, the famous verses of 5 and 6 tell you this. They go on to say, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him, and He will make your path straight. So how do your paths go straight, right? Sounds nice. How do you live a great life, in other words? It's by trusting God over and over and over again. And by not trusting who? Yourself over and over again, submitting all your ways to God over and over and over again. In other words, the key to living a wise life is growing into or becoming a wise person. That's the key right there. Now, no one cheered for that. Maybe I said it badly or wrongly or, you know, without enthusiasm. I say that growing into a wise person and our minds get fuzzy. 
They just do. Why? Well, because growing into wisdom is something our, you know, is so antithetical to our cultural norms, right? I mean, take almost every life coaching seminar, almost every life coaching book, even many Christian seminars and Christian books, which basically provide you with relief from your problems in five easy steps, right? They promise you one, two, three quick keys for greatness today or one, two, three, four ways to freedom. Now, we as a culture, we become addicted to the quick and easy formula, right? I mean, just look again at your average supermarket headline. It says you can have a great body when now, right? I mean, great skin when today, hot and tingly times when tonight, right? Tonight, that's what they all promise. And even for those of us who call ourselves Christians, I mean, we can be just as much every bit a product of our culture. And we come to want quick spiritual fixes and religious sound bites to do for us what only walking a path of continuous submitted uh, submission to God can do for us. And to illustrate this mindset, let me just volunteer the way I've seen many Christians over the years, and maybe this is you, uh, I've seen many well-meaning Christian people, especially when they get in a bind, especially when they get in trouble and they, they got to have an answer from God now. Many Christians, they don't want to walk a path and make pilgrim's progress, right? They want to board a Jesus jet and show up in church Vegas somewhere. Church Vegas, right? And they drop little coins into the plate, hoping they'll pull a spiritual lever, right? So out come, you know, three cherries, and they'll, they'll get what they need. And so they play, most people, many people can play the classic game, Christian people can play, the classic game of Bible roulette. And maybe you've heard of this, which sort of goes something like this. Oh, God, guide my finger. God, I need an answer from you. Lord, let my hand go to the one verse in the Bible. I really need that you want to speak through to me. And then, of course, your Bible falls open at first after you pray that to the New Testament. And you're thinking, thank God, dodged a bullet in the Old Testament. Or I mean, like, no judgment for me, baby. Grace abounds. But then your finger falls to this verse. And Judas went and hung himself. And you think, oh, no. I mean, that can't be good, right? You know, I must have made a mistake. God, I'll give you another chance. So you spin the wheel again. But this time, this time it says, go and do likewise. <laughs> Second verse. Right? You think, Lord, can you really be speaking to me? God, I'll give you a final chance. And you, you, know, you sort of run your hand over the Christian Ouija board one more time. And this time you fall on. And what you do, do quickly. <laughs> oh, no, you know, spiritual face palm. <laughs> What's Proverbs 3 telling us? First, that a great life, a wise life, the Christian life is less elite class, supersonic, intercontinental luxury travel with guaranteed overnight delivery or your money back. And it's more military grade. Left, right, left, right, right, left, over and over. Doing and becoming something and someone over time. Which means this. The path means that the decisions you're making today from the motives that drive those decisions, decisions you're making, are turning you into a more fixed and concrete and irreversible person and version of yourself. That's what the path means. And that's actually great news and terrible news. 
all at the same time. Because what Proverbs 4 goes on to show you in living color is the truth that the path you're on right now is determining your end for better or for worse. Both where you'll end up in 20 years and in eternity. Which is why chapter 4 gives you a case study of what happens when a person is on the wrong kind of path. Look at verse 14, 15, 16 here. It says, listen, don't even set foot. Don't even get on the wicked path or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Don't get on it. Don't travel in it. Turn from it. Go somewhere else, it's saying. For they, those on that path, cannot rest until they do evil. Look at this. They're robbed of sleep till they make someone stumble. And this describes a person who, once they begin a path over time, has less and less control over themselves and over their own life. At the beginning, you see, you know, you can still get off the path, but by the end, look what a person on a dark path becomes. Unable to sleep until they get what they have to have. And yeah, it's talking on the surface about a violent person, but underneath... Can you see? This is describing an addict in any form. An addict in any form. At first, again, there's the appearance of control, but then control diminishes until by the end, the person can't even say no to that thing. To the point that that thing is all they're living for, and that thing is what they become known for and known as. And to illustrate, let me give you one of Jesus's in the New Testament, one of Jesus Christ's most earth-shattering, mind-shattering parables. And here in Luke chapter 12, Jesus in the New Testament, he's teaching his parables, he's talking to his disciples. And look, he gives us his up-close view of a person whose life was that principle of Proverbs 4 lived out. In Luke 12, he tells a story, tells a parable of two men who died. And maybe you know the story, two men who died. And one was a rich man, it says, and the other was a poor and diseased beggar named Lazarus. And in this story, again, hang with me here. This is Jesus really telling this. In this story, the rich man is in hell. In hell. Again, Jesus said it. He's in hell. And Lazarus, the beggar who died, is in is at Abraham's side, Jesus said. And at first, the story starts like you think it should, right? I mean, the poor and righteous man is in heaven and Abraham's side. The rich man's in hell, the selfish guy. But then stuff starts going wrong and the rich man starts talking, which lets you know something's up. And the rich man, when he starts talking here in hell, again, Jesus said it, he says stuff like, Father Abraham, it's hot and I'm thirsty here. So Abraham, send Lazarus to fetch me some water. And Abraham says, I'm sorry, that can't happen. Once you're there, you can't come here. Richmond says, okay, well, I don't want my family to end up here in torment. So, so send Lazarus to tell them to shape up. Abraham says, well, hey, they've got the Bible. They've been told who God is. That ought to be enough. The rich man continues to argue with him, and he says again, Abraham, well, if you're not going to raise Lazarus from the dead, at least raise somebody from the dead to send them to my family. But then the parable ends on a chilling note. Abraham looks at him and says, basically, seeing the path that they're on, it's too late for them. Hmm. Now, put aside the fact, just for a moment, that I brought up hell in the sermon, okay? (laughs) And he didn't see it coming, right? And just look in the face of what's happening here, what this is telling us. First of all, you got two characters, but only one has a name. That never happens in any of other, any of Jesus' other parables. You've got Lazarus, whose name means literally, God is my help. And you have who? The rich man. 
No name. What's the point? Jesus is showing you here what that man had become. In other words, over time, he had lost his name. And now this is all he's known for, being a rich man. And look, who he was in life, the path he walked in life, is just continued straight on into eternity. What's he doing? Even in hell, there's no repentance, right? I mean, he admits he's in torment, but not because he sees the error of his ways or he's really sorry or wants to change or help the poor now. No, What's his main concern? He just wants to be comfortable. He just wants to be comfortable. And even in hell, what's he doing? He's given orders to Abraham, the father of Judaism. He's given orders to Lazarus, to, like he's some errand boy. Hey, Lazarus, get me water. Lazarus, go help my family. And then he basically accuses God of not giving him or his family enough information about heaven and hell to make a good decision. And of course, catch this, at no point does he ever ask to leave. What's happening? Oh, accusation, blaming, self-seeking. Oh, what's happening? The truth of Proverbs 4. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. See, this man in hell, he can't even tell what's going on. The door's locked from the inside. See, even in hell, he's still what? What is he? A rich man or he's nothing. He's got no name, just an identity. Where did his path lead him? Where does his path lead him? Hear this. It's to the same place every person's path will lead them. To the place he wanted to go all along. See? And the idea, therefore, that God just at the end of a person's life, you know, sort of picks them up, throws them into some eternal pit somewhere while he's, you know, doing some Gregorian chant at them and laughing maniacally as they go. That's not what Jesus taught. What did Jesus teach? He's teaching here. That who you are doesn't stop when you die. And the path you're on now has an eternal destination. Why is this? Thankfully, finally, number two. <laughs> like, man, I'm kind of glad that first point's over. All right, number two. Where the path? Where the path? Where, where did this rich man's path to deep darkness begin. Well, it's the same place all our paths begin, every person's path begin, which is what chapter 4, verse 23 shows us. It says this, it's wonderful. It says, above all else, guard your what? Your heart, right? For what? Everything you do flows from it. It's saying everything you do. Everything, say everything. Everything, thank you. The little choices you make, the left, right, right, left of everyday life, it comes up out of, flows out of, springs up out of one thing. What? Your heart, it says. Now, freeze. Everybody freeze. Because when you hear that word heart, it's sort of like when you hear the words presidential qualities. <laughs> Everybody's got a different, different definition of what that means, probably due to your background, culture, expectations. And so some of you, when you come to this verse and you see the word heart, you read the word heart, you think, oh yes, this is telling me to guard my emotions, right? My emotions can tend to get the better of me, so I better look after those. Or some of you might think, well, you know, this is telling me to guard what I watch, right? What I, what I think, to guard my mind, otherwise my thought life, right? will bring me down. Or some of you might think, oh yes, this is telling me to watch what I listen to, what I hear, or I might end up believing something wrong and false and bad. And while all of those are good things to do, even wise things to do, none of those are what this is talking about. So what is it? Well, you'll never understand this oft-quoted verse until you grasp what the word heart is and what it meant to the Bible writers. In the Bible, the word heart 
It takes your thoughts. It takes your emotions. It takes your feelings and says all those things spring up from somewhere far deeper, far more elemental, primal, and visceral. And the best word they could come up with for what we translate at heart is really more of a phrase. And the word means in the midst of. In the midst of. Keep a watch. Guard what's in the midst of you down deep. Take a look at what's down in the middle of you because what's in the middle of you? Where no one can see. That's what drives your thoughts, your emotions, and your beliefs. Your heart, in other words, it's saying, creates your path. Your heart creates your path. And what this is giving you here is, besides a one-verse summary of the Bible, is perhaps the greatest self-analysis tool and the greatest counseling technique you could ever get. Why? Well, again, most well-meaning counseling can say, again, you're angry, right? Let's just manage your anger. Or you'll end up like a serial killer, you know, so we've got to control the anger. Uh, Many well-meaning, even Christian sermons can say, watch what you listen to, or you'll end up in a cult someday. Or much well-meaning, even moralistic advice maybe you've gotten can say, control your thoughts, or you'll end up in an affair. And and in a sense, sense, all those are right, but in another sense, they're all wrong. Because none of those approaches is the wise approach the Bible gives us right here. Because what Proverbs 4.23 is saying, that drives, pushes up all your ungodly anger and lust and listening to and watching the stuff that you know you should have. In other words, the things that spring up out of you, the issues of life that create your path, those things come from the midst of you, from down deep, from your heart. And what your heart goes after, oh, it's what you're going to become. In other words, what the heart wants is what creates your path. So we got to ask, what does the heart want? What does the heart want? Ernest Becker, an atheist writer in his Pulitzer Prize winning book called The Denial of Death, wrote that no matter who you are, whether you're a person of faith or you're a skeptic, no matter who you are, especially in a culture that, that sort of pushes God to the fringes, here's what he says is going on down deep in the midst of every person. He says, quote, we still need to feel that our life matters in the scheme of things. That's what you're after. Does We still want to, here's the answer, we want to merge ourselves with some higher self-absorbing meaning. But if we no longer have God, how are we to do this? And one of the first ways that occurred to the modern person, as Otto Rank saw, was the romantic solution. Get this, the self-glorification we need in our what? Innermost being, in our heart. We now look for in a love partner. For example, what is it we look for when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want to be rid of our faults, of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified to know our existence has not been in vain. And he summarizes it this way. He says, we want redemption, nothing less. Now, he wasn't a religious man by any means. Oh, but his analysis is pretty spot on. Because Becker, he's just telling you here what the Bible says. He's saying that what your heart is really after is to merge with something bigger than you that makes you feel like you're somebody, right? Makes you feel like you're loved, like you're what? Enough. Enough. And he goes on to say that the irony, the irony of all those attempts at self-glorification or self-salvation, all our own attempts, end up undermining and sabotaging the things we go after. He says we end up sabotaging ourselves. And here's how. He says if what you have to have to feel loved and redeemed is the romantic solution. In other words, if being married, oh, it's what you got to have to make you feel like somebody, 
You'll either raise your standards so high, you'll never even get married, leaving you in the same position, or maybe you'll lower your standards to take anybody, leaving you, uh, you know, free to marry someone who's just going to leave you back where you started. Or maybe, uh, maybe you'll be so needy, you'll drive that other person away. See, if being married is what you got to have to make you somebody, you'll end up living unwisely and sabotaging your own efforts at relationships. Or if what you have to have is success, he says, he says, you push yourself, others around you past a breaking point, you'll end up doing what? Cutting off your own relationships, working your body into the ground, losing your health, and what do you end up as? A failure, not a success. See, you sabotage your own success if success is what you have to have to be somebody. Puts any other thing in the midst of you and you end up losing it anyway. Why is this? Hmm. A man by the name of Martin Luther understood this better than anyone, almost. He was part of an order of Augustinian monks who lived in the 16th century. And Luther, he had a pastor, a vicar general, a man by the name of Johannes von Staupitz. Yes, von Staupitz. He was his vicar general, or the pastor, his pastor, during one of the most crucial periods of Luther's life. And during this crucial part of Luther's life, Luther was doing what every person should do, which was to wrestle with what was in the midst of him, down deep. And Luther would come and he'd confess all sorts of stuff to von Staupitz, including at least one six-hour marathon confession, and to which von Staupitz famously remarked, and you'll, you'll pardon the crudeness here, spoken in the name of truth. But von Stoppett said to Luther, after six hours of confession, he says, Martin, it's as if you're turning every fart into a sin. (laughs) But Luther was coming to see something. And what he was coming to see is maybe you've, something you've been coming to see this morning, at least suspected, which is that here in Proverbs, there's a trap, or there's a box. There's sort of a bind Proverbs puts us in. Because Proverbs 4 says, guard your heart. But Luther saw, because the human heart was what he called incurvitase or in turn inward on itself, because the heart was so addicted to itself that unless something happened to the heart, unless something intervened, some kind of intervention took place, every heart was doomed to a dark path apart from God's presence. And that's when the trap of Proverbs hit him. He saw that while he had done everything to guard his heart, He could do nothing to change his heart. And until his heart changed, all he was guarding was an idle factory. All he was guarding was a foul spring, a polluted well, and a path leading to deep darkness. See, Luther had been formerly a slave to his lusts and his passions. And then he did what lots of folks, especially in the South, can do. He got religion. He went to church, right? He entered the ministry to run from the things his heart was running after. But he found as will all honest seekers, that no matter where you run, you take your heart with you. And so Luther confessed to his pastor that although he saw before he had been chasing the world, and now he's, you know, chasing Bible study and caring for the poor, in reality, in both places, he was doing it for himself. He's doing it for himself. First to feel the pleasure of pleasure, then to feel the pleasure of having a guilt-free conscience. But he discovered he had never done anything just for the pleasure of God. Let me ask you, have you? Have you ever done anything solely for the pleasure of God? See, Luther was right. He was right. And his story 
was my story as well. I was raised in the church, maybe like some of you, raised in the Bible, raised in a pew, played in the church band, but what was in the midst of me, my heart, oh, it never been changed. And the reason my behavior never changed on the surface, my emotions and attitudes and feelings and lust never changed on the surface is because what was down deep had never changed in the first place. I was in a church on a path of wickedness going to hell like that rich man. See, you can sit in a garage and never become a car, right? Sit at McDonald's all day, never become a Big Mac. Some of you are saying, man, thank God for that, right? But Martin Luther learned you can sit in a monastery even and never become a Christian, never know God. So what changed his life? Well, he came to understand something. And if you grasp it, it'll change your life today as well. He came to understand, finally, number three, who the path, who the path. And here's what he said happened to him. He said, quote, at last, meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God, the approval of God, is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. See, he said his heart changed. He was born again when he saw that a formula and church and religion won't do. But the only thing that could change his path wasn't his own effort. But it was a gift. Do you hear that this morning? It was a gift. He saw that the path to life was a who. A who. In centuries before Martin Luther was ever born, you see, there was another teacher of wisdom named Jesus of Nazareth. And one day he had his disciples around him said and he said that he was on the path jesus was on the path back to be with god whom he claimed with his own father and then he said to his disciples he says you know the path the way to god too and one of them a guy by the name of thomas he was so confused by jesus's statement maybe like some of you are now and he said jesus we have no idea what that path is and jesus turned to him and said basically thomas the, the path isn't a what He said, it's a who. Thomas, the reason I can say you know the way to God, the path to God, is because Thomas, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to God except through me. What's he saying? Oh, Jesus is saying to Thomas and to us today, he was giving Thomas the answer to what Ernest Becker said, every human heart seeks a way, a path to merge with glory and love and meaning. See, what's behind all your failed attempts, if this is you, to become somebody? What's driving you to compromise your beliefs when you do? What makes you work harder even though it's killing you? Or what drives you to sex or porn or food or whatever? Spending or another vacation to be popular in school or be cool in front of the guys. And every other dark path we walk. See, what's driving that? If we'll have the guts to admit what Luther admitted and what Becker saw is to admit, we're just not enough. We're not enough. It's what the Bible calls, we've had the experience of shame. Shame. Looking to something else to be our glory and our righteousness. See, we don't feel like we're enough. Isn't that the story of humanity? We know we're not enough to be glorious on our own, so we try to merge with another glory. That's what Adam and Eve did. They, they chose fig leaves. We just choose money or a car or a woman or a man or a job. It's all the same. But Jesus says, says, Thomas, I'm the only path that leads to life. The only path that leads to life. He's saying, I'm the path to glory. I'm what your heart really wants, Thomas. And if you have me, Jesus is saying, you've got the path. You've got the path. And how could this be? 
Because moments after he said this, Jesus went out and he was betrayed by wicked men on wicked paths. And he was crucified to a cross. He was nailed there and suffered, the Bible says, as deep darkness came over the land. Deep darkness. What does it mean? Oh, Jesus himself became wickedness and darkness and folly. He became, in a sense, the ultimate rich man in Luke 12, right? To get what we deserved. The absence of the presence of God. He himself, the Bible says, bore your sin on the tree that you could die to sin and live now by God's approval. To take your dark paths into his own heart and to pay for your pardon and freedom and release from that, from all the doomed paths you choose. That now you can have the true path to God and you can merge with what your heart really longs for. Jesus did it so that Proverbs 4.18 could be yours. Look at this. So that, so that in your life, the path of a righteous is like the morning sun, shining brighter and brighter till the full light of day. And if his path is in the midst of you, oh, these words are your words as well. How do we apply this? Let's close in three ways briefly before we go to the Lord in prayer. First, you can apply this through getting a new kind of acceptance in your life, friend. Proverbs 3, 3 says this, let love and faithfulness never leave you. The reason anyone ever pursues a dark path of any kind is because they're looking for a way to get out from the crushing burden of the shame they feel deep down because they know they're not enough. And listen, you can't get acceptance from yourself. That's why you're looking for something else anywhere. This is saying you've got to go to two things. This word love is the word K-Seth. It's God's covenant love. You've got to go to God's covenant love over and over and over. And faithfulness is the Hebrew word for spoken truth. This is speaking of Christian community. You've got to go to God's love, the gospel, and Christian community. His covenant love and spoken truth to you in your life over and over and over. That's what it means to walk a wise path. It's a new kind of acceptance. Two, you can get this through a new kind of guard rail. Guard rail, because this chapter, it does show you how to stay out of the ditches for those of you who are Christian people through spiritual disciplines, glory. Like giving in verse nine. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth. Do you give financially over and over and over? It keeps you out of the ditch of becoming the rich man. Putting the Bible down inside of you to fight off spiritual attacks, verse seven, even embracing difficulties and troubles, like verse 12. But finally this morning, you get this through just a new kind of path. Have you trusted him with all your heart? All your heart. That's where the new path begins. It can be yours today. Let's close and ask him to help us as we pray this morning. Lord, we come to you thanking you for these difficult truths, challenging truths. Lord, I'm praying now that for some of us, even the gates of paradise will be swung wide open. As we see, you're really what we needed, what we've looked for all along.